Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me today, I'll introduce to you in a moment, is Dr. Layton Flowers from Soteriology 101, as well as Dr. Jonathan Pritchett from this channel. And we are responding today to Christy Burke, who is an outspoken atheist. Uh, I think first she was a TikToker and now on YouTube and is very getting more popular all the time, is very popular. And Christy mentions in a video that there was a particular passage that was the start that led to the start of her deconstruction. And that passage is Romans chapter 9. Fortunately, we actually have someone uh, in our friend group and among our colleagues who has written an entire book on Romans chapter 9, done debates on Romans chapter 9 with one of the leading voices and some of the leading voices on this issue. And so today we brought him in to uh, offer his take on this issue and whether or not it should have, this particular passage should have led to a deconstruction in the life of Christy Burke. Um, and so I'm excited to bring both of you guys on, Dr. Layton Flowers and Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Braxton. Appreciate it, Jonathan. Oh, man, we're so excited to have you here. We just don't know what to do with ourselves. And so um, I, I don't know uh, how this is going to go. I, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a, it's like a three and a half minute clip where Christy makes this point and discusses it. And I hate to leave it playing that long. I'm going to do that unless you guys want me to stop it and make a comment. And if you do, that's totally fine. Before we do that, um, I want to say real quick to the audience that we are going to be gone or I'm going to be gone to Australia for two weeks just after Thanksgiving. So there probably won't be anything from Trinity Radio during that time. It doesn't mean that we've disappeared. It doesn't mean that we're that we don't exist or we're not coming back. We are coming back, hopefully, with proof of kangaroos in hand. Well, maybe not in hand, but proof that kangaroos. Are you going to kill a kangaroo <laughs> while you're in and smuggle with uh, uh, But just uh, just take a picture. Just take a picture. Don't kill it. Yeah. You don't believe they exist, but if you find one, you'll kill it. That's what you're telling us. Okay, maybe. Okay, so anyway, this this is already a lot of fun. Leighton, do you have anything that you want to say ahead of time before we jump yeah, into the video? Well, just real quick, because um, you, you can find a lot of passages in Scripture uh, when you read them at first reading can sound like something difficult to understand. Uh, she has several passages that she actually reads from. Romans 9 just happens to be the, the one that kind of led her down this journey, but um, th this gets into apologetic methodologies um, that I know you're very familiar with, Braxton, but you, you kind of have one of three approaches when you read passages that are a little bit difficult in Scripture. You, you can come along and say, oh, well, this must mean God's evil, therefore he's not worthy of worship, or, or the Bible's wrong, or something like that, like many atheists will often do. Look at this passage, God's obviously evil, therefore God's not real, therefore we shouldn't trust him or believe in him. That's one approach you can have to these kinds of texts. The, the second approach you can have to these kind of a text is to say um, you've misinterpreted the Bible. You've misunderstood what was happening in that context. God's not evil. Uh, what you're, you're understanding about God is short-sighted. And here is some hermeneutical and exegetical information that can help you contextually understand this passage in its, in its proper context to understand that God actually is demonstrably good. He's recognizably good. He's a good God. And that's the way you and I, I think, would would approach these kinds of things. And then there's a third way, and this is what I've tried to confront on my broadcast, as, as I know you guys have confronted as well. And it's more of the the necessarianism kind of perspective, 
Well, yes, yes, God's doing something that looks evil, but it's really not evil because it's God. And so God can do whatever he wants to do. And if God chooses to do something that's evil, then it's his prerogative. He, he, who are you to talk back to God? If he does this thing that, that seems evil by all practical and intuitive, you know, uh, judgments, I, you're just a man and he's God. And who are you to question him? And yes, there are some aspects in which you, you can say that about certain aspects of who God is. He is creator. He, he's not on, on par with man. And there are certain things that God obviously can do and does that we can't and, and, and would be able to pull off even if we wanted to. But this is really why it's so important to understand the different apologetic methodologies. I don't think we should just necessarily assume that someone's interpreting the text correctly. Uh, when they bring charge against God. That's what apologetics is all about. It's giving a defense of our faith, defending God's character, his goodness. And that's, I think, one presupposition you could bring to every text is God is good. His character is good. Um, he's recognizably good. And therefore, if you come along a passage that makes God seem less than good, it may be that you're misinterpreting the passage and that you should look at the contextual, you know, hermeneutical principles and things uh, that surround that passage and understand it in its proper context before you make a judgment. Excellent. Um, I agree with that, brother. And I see that you're coming packing with goodness and mercy right there on your shirt, because we think that that is, uh, we think that our God is good and merciful. And sometimes when you take a passage wrong or you um, build a theology off of one text, like we've been said a little bit here, then you can forget the goodness and mercy of God or come to view God as not uh, in a way that his judgment and wrath um, is emphasized to the exclusion of goodness and mercy, whether a person realizes that or not. Uh, I do want to just... You're here too. Hello. Hi. I, I also <laughs> I want to add uh, on to what Leighton said, though. Um, I think that it's okay to read something in the Bible and be unsettled by it. Even if, even if you don't ultimately agree with certain ways that people interpret various passages, mm -hmm. it's okay to be unsettled by certain things. The idea that you need everything uh, to fit your your standard, right? I, I want to push back on that. It, yeah, I was it, just telling I was just telling yeah. Jonathan we were talking about this before the stream that not with respect to this passage, but with some of the things that get that God gets criticized for. Look what God did. And it used to be back in the late 2000s or mid-2000s when the debates that you could find were William Lane Craig and, and uh, Christopher Hitchens and Gary Habermas and all, all those kind of people. Sometimes the response was after an atheist described, well, look at what God did in X, Y, and Z scenario. And the response from someone like Craig would be, so you don't like what God did there. Or it's that's, that's this all you're guy saying. chops his daughter into several different pieces and it's look what God did or look what God approved yeah, of. Crediting people. Yeah, or, or look God what God for what people Or look did. what God was okay with. Where, where does it say that God was okay with this? Right. It's right? just what I mean, happened. And so the other thing I wanted to say is it's okay to be unsettled. Um, even, even if it turns out you can't find a way to in, interpret a passage to a, a way that you can be okay with it, it's still okay to be unsettled. But another thing I want to say is uh christians sometimes do this to ourselves because we have what's called one sentence theology which we take a random sentence from the bible we call them verses or whatever but even just and then we construct a whole theology a whole set of metaphysics all, all around random sentences without reading them in context and of course context doesn't just mean the verses before and after a particular sentence context 
encompasses, you know, it's historical, it's ideological, it's theological, it's performative, it's rhetorical, it's sociological, it's ideological mm-hmm. framework. All that is context, right? It's not merely just words before and after the words you're looking at. So context is a huge uh, thing that you have to take into consideration. Okay. But when you read things in context, ask yourself, if somebody makes a claim about a Bible verse, ask yourself this question. Does that necessarily follow from the words they just read from their, their Bible? Does that, right. they read a sentence, does what they say about that sentence actually follow from that sentence? Right. And surprisingly, the answer is usually no. It can follow. Or not does it, necessarily. Does it necessarily follow? Right. No. All right. Well, we're 10 minutes in and we haven't heard from Christy yet. So let's jump into this and hear what she has to say. So the first passage I want to talk about is from Romans 9, which was the starting point of my deconstruction journey. Up until the point that I read and studied and chewed on the words in Romans 9, I believed in a God who created all people, gave them free will and that he wanted all people to be saved, but he couldn't violate their free will to save them. And that it was the most loving thing he could do to give people freedom. And within that freedom, they could either choose him and go to heaven or they could reject him and go to hell. And that would be entirely their choice. I was an evangelist, so I believed in going out into my communities, spreading the word, trying to win as many souls as possible because I looked around and there were people Yes. I, I just wanted to say, other than uh, she said God couldn't override their free will, mm-hmm. I would say God wouldn't, but not, not, I don't. I wouldn't say he necessarily couldn't, mm-hmm. but he would. But other than that, I've read Romans nine, and I still agree with how she understood God, having read Romans nine and understanding Romans nine. I I, I agree with who she thought God was before she read Romans nine, is who I think God is, having read Romans nine. Right. So, uh, John, uh, Leighton, anything at this point? Yeah, no, I, I, I think Jonathan's right. You can, you can, uh, acknowledge the fact that she had an understanding of God in her previous, you know, previous to coming to Romans nine and recognize that had she known that there were scholars like Dr. Pritchett and others who believe like she did with regard to God giving humans responsibility and the ability to respond positively or negatively as truth and still understand Romans nine in its proper context. And it seems like at least based upon this small testimony of hers, she didn't even take the time to get to know those scholars. She, she just automatically assumes that the Calvinistic interpretation of Romans nine is the only viable one. And people ask, why did, why do you have a ministry of soteriology one-on-one always talking about Calvinism? People wonder why. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all, I, part of the thing here is, look, I'd rather someone be a Calvinist than an atheist, for sure. I've said that very publicly many times, said it right after my, uh, one of my debates to a person who said, I can't, I can't come to believe in free will, but I'd like to be a Christian. Uh, we don't have a problem saying that. We, we would much rather you be a Calvinist, and we love our Calvinist brothers and sisters, and they're not heretics and all that stuff. Just right. But— if someone comes to affirm some, come to believe the Bible teaches something that I don't think, and Leighton doesn't think, and Jonathan doesn't think is what the Bible teaches, and then they walk away from Christianity in part because that started them on the journey, then we need yeah. to respond with a proper Christian. Uh, and, and I think that's to do to pay us back the favor, Calvinists, 
um, that that I'm happy to pay to Calvinists when someone can't accept free will. And I'm like, well, at least you should be a Christian. There are non uh, there are deterministic uh, understandings of Christianity, even though. Well, and, and to and, and to John Piper's credit, there is a, a ask a jo- Pastor John podcast where there is an uh, Armenian uh, lady who writes him and, and just says, I can't. I can't swallow this Calvinism uh, version of God, and and I'm going to leave the faith. If this is if this is truly God, then I can't I can't be a Christian. I just I, I and and he to his credit puts on his pastor hat and says, I would much rather you be an Armenian Christian than not a Christian at all, much like you did. Amen. And and um, the, the, so to his credit, he's willing to also drop you know his Calvinism as a secondary matter to say to a struggling person. Hey, I, I would much rather you um, adopt Christianity in, in the main core concepts of Christianity uh, than to leave Christianity altogether because you can't swallow the difficult pill of theistic determinism and, and Calvinistic soteriology. Right on. All right, let's hit. Let's get some more info here from Christy. Going to hell, and I didn't want that to happen. But when I was 17 years old, I was introduced to the concept of Calvinism, and when I was introduced to this, I said no way. There's no way that God created people just to go to hell. And then I read Romans 9, starting in verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for his glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? It says, starting in verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy, meaning there is nothing about you that can come to God and choose. God has to choose you. It says in verse 18, right, therefore God has mercy stop. on who? Remember my question? Does it mean that just because it sounded that way to you? Right. Does that <laughs> necessarily follow? From, um, now, Leighton and I differ on what verse 16 means, and I don't want to argue with Leighton for the whole thing on what <laughs> who the who, who the one... Uh, Willing and the one running, but I mean, um, but well, to quote you, Jonathan, you have said before on a lot of these things, there are multiple non-Calvinist pa- uh, ways of understanding these texts that are more plausible than the Calvinist understanding. So you might have a particular reading, yeah. Leighton might have a particular reading of one aspect of this passage. You agree right. generally, but and then like the fourth uh, one before Calvinism is that this has something to do with Han Solo, Han Solo and Chewbacca, and Chewbacca yeah. on the Millennium Falcon, yeah. and then Calvinism, you say, is the other option. Right? The- <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I don't. You know, one of the things about 
this whole discussion of soteriology, we call it soteriology, but what we're really talking about is conversionology, right? Because whether it's Calvinism or Arminianism, and I pray that provisionism grows into being about soteriology and not just the metaphysics of conversion, right? Because salvation is a big thing. It's a big ticket item. It is not merely individual. It is corporate. It is not merely human. It is cosmic. And yet we talk about the, most of these debates revolve around uh, individual conversions to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And what I think that she thinks is that, that verse 16 is talking about is an individual converting from non-Christianity to Christianity does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. And there is nothing in Romans 9 that talks about the metaphysics of how an individual goes from non-Christianity to Christianity. So what she thinks um, this verse means, I think Leighton and I both agree that this is not about God expl- or Paul explaining how God converts an individual non-Christian to Christianity. So... Yeah, so Leighton, what's going on here? <laughs> I think Give we both agree with that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think some of the, the differences between Dr. Pritchett and my take on this is somewhat nuanced, but it comes to basically the same conclusions. And and I would encourage uh, this young lady to keep reading, just like I do my Calvinist friends, because oftentimes Calvinism is killed by the context. And if you just go on reading, uh, Ro- Romans 9 ends with a, a a commentary from its own author. In other words, Paul goes on to say, what shall we say to these things? And then he gives an explanation. And if you pick up in verse 30, it says, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness, which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but though as it were by works. In other words, in Paul's mind, this passage is about the Jewish people who are pursuing, willing and running, desiring to attain salvation through the works of the law, through their nationality and the works of the law. And this other group of people called the Gentiles, generally speaking, who are receiving this righteousness by faith, trusting in the righteous one who is Christ. And they are actually attaining it. Both of them are pursuing it. Notice there's not anything wrong with the pursuit. But one of them is pursuing it through willing and running and striving. People forget to keep the 635 Levitical laws was called a yoke of slavery. It was a great amount of effort and striving after this. Okay. So these people were working their entire lives to earn their salvation, to earn their acceptance to God by striving and working. And so to understand this text to mean it is not through striving and working that you're saved, but through a God who shows mercy and he can choose to, to, Establish covenant with whomever he wants to, even a barbarian Gentile who has never kept a law on the day of their life. And that is what's so upsetting to the people of this day is this concept and idea that God can establish covenant with non-Jews who don't keep the law. That's what Paul is confronting here. And when you understand that's what Paul's confronting, you don't insert, as Dr. Pritchett rightly was saying, insert this metaphysical way of conversion that we're inserting into our modern day Western debate over Arminianism, Calvinism, and provisionism and all that that's entailed in there. That's not even in the mind of Paul when he's writing this, in my estimation. And when you go on to keep reading into chapters 10 and 11, you quickly learn that these hardened Israelites, those he chooses to harden, are the same ones who have stumbled but not beyond recovery, according to chapter 11, verse 11. Um, who were cut off, not arbitrarily before they were ever born for no apparent reason. No, they were cut off for their unbelief. 
In other words, they were cut off in their already rebellious state, not just because God didn't want them before they were born or something like that. In other words, they're being cut off for a good reason. They're being judged, hardened for a good reason. But Paul even holds out hope that his own ministry to the Gentiles might provoke them to envy his countrymen, the Jews, so that they too might turn, be saved, be grafted back in, he even says. So that's clearly not the reprobate of the non-elect on Calvinism as the Calvinists interpret chapter 9 to be. And so when you understand the full context of what Paul is laying out and the quotes that he's quoting from in the Old Testament, you begin to quickly see that Calvinism just quickly falls apart in and on itself. And there's no basis on which to reject Christianity based upon a Calvinistic misinterpretation of Romans 9. So, Leighton, what is going on? So I, I know you, in one sense you just explained it. You said, okay, they were trying to keep all of these laws and do that sort of thing. And that leads to the confusion about the statements that she quoted that made it sound like, well, there's nothing you can do. You're either just uh, going to be condemned or not. And that's totally going to be, you know, God's going to do that. What What is going on largely if you were talking to a, to a uh, fifth grader who didn't know all this soteriology and they're like, look, Romans 9, I'm reading it. It looks like it's saying God, God loves certain people, doesn't love other people. Uh, he, he hardens people like Pharaoh. He does, does all these kind of things. What, if it's not talking about personal salvation, what's going on here? Yeah. And there's a book that I wrote called the Potter's promise that help you for those that want to go do two details, but for, and there's also videos there at sociology going on that we can walk through this, but you gotta, you gotta start from the beginning and look at what the, the journey through Paul's, uh, you know, epistle here to, to explain all that's behind what Paul is saying. But in the beginning of the chapter, he says, I would give up my own salvation for the sake of my countrymen, the Jews. So he's clearly talking about Israel. He goes on in verse four and five to say, it's the law, the prophets, um, the, the Messiah comes through the nation of Israel. They're chosen for this service, this this honorable purpose. And so Israel is a chosen nation. Now, here, here's an important point about the doctrine of election. God doesn't choose Israel to the neglect of all the other nations of the world. He doesn't choose individuals from Israel to the neglect of all the other individuals. Okay, Biblical election is about God choosing nations and individuals for the benefit, the blessing of everyone else. As the original promise stated to Abraham, I have chosen you, and through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. A biblical doctrine of election is never about God choosing individuals or nations to the neglect of other people. It's about God choosing individuals and nations to bring a service, a blessing. And so when you understand that going into this text, it really does help you to flow where he's going because he's talking about the fact that the nation of Israel was chosen for this honorable purpose, but they're not even believing in their own Messiah. And so maybe God's promises has failed, verse 6. Maybe maybe this is all for naught and God's just failed. And he's saying, by no means, and now he's walking his reader through explaining how God has not failed, despite the fact that Israel has become unfaithful and are rejecting their own Messiah. And this is when he gets into the Edomites and uh, and, and uh, Jacob, Israel, and, and talks about how God used both of these seeds of Abraham. And even though the Edomites had rejected um, God because they attacked Israel, that the curse came upon them, the hatred was pronounced upon them in Malachi. And you can't interpret that as being an individual, you know, Esau before he's ever born, uh, being hated like God hates unborn babies just arbitrarily for no apparent reason or something like that. Of course not. When you understand it in its context, 
you understand that it's talking about this warring of nations. And he's making the point that the Edomites are, are the, the children of Esau, who's the oldest of um, Isaac himself, who's the son of Abraham. So this is of the seed of Abraham. And look what happened to them when they stood against the promises of God. How are you, Israelites today, going to escape that same rebuke and that same curse if you stand against those who are carrying the word of God, like many of the Pharisees were in that day? And so when you understand what Paul is trying to get to in this text, you begin the flow comes much more clearly, and you don't come away with this capricious, arbitrary concepts of God picking certain yeah. people for damnation and salvation yeah. before they're... Yeah. And it's not a narrowing of salvation like... like uh, like her video made it seem, and the, and I think that it's it's actually an expanding of salvation. Exactly. That as you began. Yeah, talking it's also this. worth pointing out that even like with Paul moves from you know the the patriarchs to the Exodus, and then he's going to move on further into the exile period. This is history here, um, and he's using that to relate it to what God's strategy is, and. Note that, as with the Exodus, the current hardening of Israel in the Paul's present, both of those are salvific, right? The hardening of Pharaoh was to make God's name and glory known so that nations centuries later feared Yahweh, like Israel's neighbors, right? right? In such a way that, that it, but, but it was to serve the purpose of delivering the Hebrew people from bondage. Right, Paul in the previous chapter not only talked about humans being delivered from bondage, but all of creation being delivered from the bondage of decay, and so the hardening of the Jews, as Leighton mentioned earlier, as you continue to read on through ten and eleven, also has this as salvation. I'm not talking about just individual conversion to Christian. I'm talking about salvation. It also has has salvation or redemption, if you will, in view that. I can still believe in the God who wants everyone to be saved, even if he has to harden people in order to accomplish that. And why does he harden people? Because it's judicial. It's, it's you know, they have rejected the Messiah. So it's like, okay, if this is, if this is what you're going to do, I'm going to let your temple stand for another 30 to 25 to 30 years. You're going to be blinded to this. And this is going to serve a purpose, provoke you to jealousy, and these Gentiles are going to come in and start receiving covenantal blessings and favor. So even the hardening part mm-hmm. is salvific with the yeah, aims and of a lot saving of people don't recognize, the most number of people. Yeah, a lot of people don't recognize that cutting somebody off, which is what hardening is, is it's giving somebody over to the, their own lust, their own, their own resolve. And so it's strengthening somebody in their resolve. So they're resolved to abandon the faith, their resolve to do all these things. Uh, I've, I've brought light to you. I've held up my hands to you, but I'm not, the Bible says he's not going to contend with men forever. And he, he can give them over to their own lust and their own ways. And a lot of people think, well, that's just not merciful. That's not very gracious. And the truth of the matter is that's actually a very gracious thing. Uh, in the, the letter to the Corinthians, he says, what, warn them once, warn them twice, and then cut them off and have nothing to do with them so that you may save their soul? Well, what's he talking sure. about? Hand them over to Satan, uh, First, speaking of First Corinthians, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Exactly. It's just like the enabling that parents can do if they've got that 20-year-old son living in the basement who's not following any rules. One of the best things you can do for that kid if he's not following the rules is change the locks. 
kick them out. You don't enable them in their in their behaviors and their sinful behaviors. You you set the boundaries. If they're not willing to live by the, your rules, then you cut you cut them off. And in doing so, the hope is if they don't kill themselves in the process, the hope is they'll see the error of their ways and then return in humiliation and uh, humbly say, I, "I need your help," because it breaks them. That that pigsty moment breaks them to bring them to the point of of knowing that they have a need. That's why you know evangelists like you, Braxton, often say sometimes it's harder to get people lost than it is to get them saved. Sometimes they have to hit the pigsty of their life to recognize they need a savior. They, they, they realize they're lost. And that's a really important process for people to understand that the Israelites didn't think they needed a physician. They thought they were the physicians and this cutting them off, putting them outside of God's favor, stopping the blessings um, is actually a, a merciful thing for God to do, which is exactly what he cl- concludes in chapter uh, 11, verse 32. I've bound all men over to disobedience. I've cast them out so that all so that I may show mercy to them all, he even says. Very universal concepts here when you look at the whole context of chapters 9 all the way through and, chapter 11. And once again, corporate context. Mm-hmm. This is exactly. not... So this is why I hate it when non-Calvinists, whether they're Arminians or provisionists or whatever, give up salvation language because reducing salvation to uh, debates about the metaphysics of conversion. Because this passage, is it about the service or salvation? Yes, it's about salvation. It is about salvation in its full scope, its full spectrum. It's not about reducing salvation to how an individual converts from non-Christianity to Christianity, which is the the category that everyone dumps onto this and they dump it on to a lot more passages than this um, that, that deal with soteriology proper. But once we get out of thinking about how individuals convert from non-Christianity to Christianity and start thinking about salvation and it's broad sweeps of what God's doing and what theologians would call the program of redemption, this makes a lot more sense and you see what Leighton was saying that, oh, God has to deal with some people this way in order to bring them in, and he has to deal with these people this way in order to bring them in. I mean, God, Paul starts his whole letter talking about Jews and Greeks and even the barbarians. You know, he's just talking about all kinds of corporate groups. But for some reason, everyone takes Romans and reads it through Luther's existential crisis instead of reading Romans on uh, ancient Mediterranean terms. But anyway. Well, and, and also verse 16, you know, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. Even if you were to hyper-individualize that like the Westerner tends to do about individual's conversion, um, th- this is one of the things that I'll do oftentimes when I'm talking to a Calvinist. Even if I grant you your argument that this is actually about that, it still doesn't say enough to support the Calvinistic reading because we all believe that God doesn't is not forced to save those who are willing um, just because the prodigal chose willingly to come home to beg for a job from his, uh, his father doesn't mean that the father owed that to him or that he had to do it. It still depends upon the willingness of the father. Yeah, the father exactly. Has to it, it, yeah. So my individual salvation does not depend on my willing or running. It depends on God having exactly. mercy, regardless of whether I, it's through beliefs or if, if God decided instead of Jesus, he wanted us to stand on one leg for 30 minutes every day, whatever God's conditions are, no matter what I do to meet the condition, whether it's repent and believe, follow Torah, stand on one leg, whatever, it would never depend on me doing any of that. It depends on God willing to save people uh, out of mercy, not out of performance. So, but I, I still don't think, 
I think your explanation of this verse is the second most likely, that this is basically about the typical Israelite um, willing and running after Torah. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's what Paul means here, though. I think I think Paul is talking about uh, after he's talking about the Sinai event here, and if he's quoting from the Sinai event, I think I think this verse is talking about Paul slash Moses. Paul earlier said that he's willing to be accursed, you know, for, for the sake of his brothers, and and uh, you know he's always running in and out of synagogues, and and uh, Moses was willing to. Uh, if, if you're going to ditch these people, then kill me. Don't start a new nation out of me. You know, he's arguing with God. And I think it doesn't depend on Moses willing and running interceding on behalf of Israel any more than it depends on Paul. I think this is Paul. I think this is a self-insert here. Uh, that's my interpretation because it's sandwiched in here between his, you know, in the Sinai thing. And he already cast himself as Paul back in, I mean, Paul already cast himself as Moses back in uh, verse three. So I think that well, and and I actually mentioned that in my book. Um, it might have been your influence. I don't remember how exactly all that came about, but it, where I talk about how the it refers back to the the election of Israel. In other words, the election of Israel, God's purpose in choosing the nation of Israel, does not depend upon the faithfulness of the Israelites. And and same thing that you're. I think the point you're making there too. It's not it, it, that God's God's election of Israel, even when they're unfaithful, is God still faithful? Exactly what He asked back in chapter three. Yeah, even when the Israelites are unfaithful, God is still able to bring about his purposes in and through them, sometimes even using them in their unfaithfulness to bring about that purpose, which is exactly what he's doing in the time of Christ, because it's through them crying out, crucify him, that he's bringing about his purpose of redemption through them. Yeah, Yeah, uh, I've always wanted, you you know, I, I, I enjoy hearing you guys disagree about this, but what would you say to the person that might watch this, an atheist, and who says, look, you guys can't even agree what the passage is about, but you're going to tell Christy Burke she's wrong about it being a Calvinist passage. So uh, clearly we can't know or something like that. Yeah, we'll go back to what you said earlier. Let's rank the possible interpretations and pass this being a commentary about Han Solo and Chewbacca, you find Calvinism. Yeah, I mean, plus, I, I, what you're I, talking I, about, what you guys yeah. disagree about has nothing directly to do with the main implication of whether or not Calvinism is true. It just has yeah. to do with... Uh, it just has to do with how you understand that yeah, particular passage. Yeah, but see, look, and the reason why I'm saying that, I'm not just trying to be silly. It's that, and I mean no offense to our Calvinist viewers, I, Calvinism is an interesting set of ideas uh, that have had uh, impact in Western theological thought. I, I get that. It's interesting, yeah. But but as far as we're talking about biblical truth and, like, exegesis of grown-ups, Calvinism is so off my radar now as being even plausible that I've moved past even taking it seriously and I, I, not trying to offend you i just the, the 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 theological and philosophical and exegetical frameworks that you guys bring to the, the filters you bring are are non-starters for me they just they don't work for me anymore i mean you, you're just you guys are talking about something way off in left field that's not serious to me so I, i'm not trying to be a jerk i'm just trying to put where i'm at why i say that is because there's so much here in this passage to talk about that we can differ on and debate and stuff that Calvinism doesn't even come up to the surface but of the things Leighton and Leighton. I are, like I said, I, I would even like to debate Brian Abbasiano, uh on, on his take on certain exegetical decisions, largely because I took some of his conclusions and other things and just kept following it, following it, following it. It's like, why did he conclude this when he said this earlier? And I'm like, he influenced me to even go beyond some of his takes. I'm like, we could, we could have so many debates on Romans nine where Calvinism is so far, not even a consideration 
uh, on mm. how, how to take this passage at various but points. But let me qualify yeah. something you yeah. said, because I'm, I'm the guy that qualifies. Okay. And uh, that is to say that that doesn't mean that you don't take Calvinists seriously, uh, because when they're not talking about Calvinism, you have tomes from Calvinists in your office that you reflect on and research. Oh, I, no, no, that. I'm saying... I'm, That's, what, this is the qualifier. What I'm saying is when it comes to this when passage... When it comes to Romans 9, you're like, Calvinism doesn't even come into it for me. Right. Yeah. I, I don't... I, I'm not seeing any of their exegetical... Well, you've done major groups. research project yeah. on it. You've debated it. Yeah, and, I mean, I was just saying... I, what it, what, I take Calvinists... I even no, take... I mean, you've already dealt with it. I take Calvinists serious. I take Calvinism seriously as an interesting set of ideas that I think are... are, are Interesting to explore and talk about. You don't take it as whatever. a serious contender for Romans nine, or just biblical truth in general. Like the, the that if if you properly understand the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you walk away thinking as part of that this soteriology of Calvinism is found within those pages. No, I don't. Well, Jonathan, I mean you and you and I've you know, happened to work together there at Trinity, mm-hmm. and we oftentimes do dissertation. You know, um, talk talking with uh, what what's it called the uh, uh, um, you know what I'm talking about when you uh, talk through the dissertation with somebody. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. Um, the, the oral, oral defense. defense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oral defense. Couldn't I couldn't get that word out for some reason? Okay, so um, we, we when we talked about this with those who've written on this subject, uh, I know you've pointed this out, and and it's been brought up several times on my broadcast too. Is that some of the commentators, the best commentators, who are actually Calvinists like Moo and Morris, Schreiner and others. Yeah. Actually, I'm reading through their commentaries on several sections of Romans and Romans not included where I'm going, yep, yep, that's exactly what I would say too. I agree with that. Right. Um, and then and then inexplicably, however, they'll often tag their own little Calvinistic statement at the end of an otherwise good exegetical finding. Right. And, and, it, and, it, and it, it's quite baffling that we've pointed out several times that Calvinists, because I don't know if they work for the Westminster, you know, seminary or whatever. No, it's places the Reformed Baptists, not the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians, Presbyterians uh, don't do this. It's the it's the Reformed Baptist Calvinists. Presbyterian scholars, they have a full scope of Reformed theology. Um, Reformed Baptists, so to speak, are kind of cherry pickers of the Reformed tradition. And so... Uh, they're they're worse, but it's really I mean biblical scholars, the exegetes, they don't they don't make as grand of the claims as the theologians do. The 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 more yeah, systematic yeah. theologian type, uh, especially the reform the reformed Baptist. I mean for Calvinist soteriology in in the Presbyterian tradition, except for like the OPC, like the Orthodox Presbyterian tradition, but just the typical. I mean even Sprawl in the eighties, right? I mean. He was talking yeah, yeah. about Calvinism, but I mean, he had a whole bunch of topics that he wrote on because he, he thought broader than that. And it was like, whatever. Uh, it wasn't until the soteriology debates that, 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 that come around every several decades that, that they blow up real big. And then people, then you get the, the Arthur Pink types who just want to come in and just go, or the Vincent Cheung types or the R.C. Sproul Jr. types, for that matter, who want to go scorched right. earth. Calvinism. Well, in Calvinism, and Calvinism does tend to become a little bit more and more consistent within its own, the claims of its own system and be, and kind of lean towards hyper type tendencies over a course of, of decades. And then, and then as even Phil Johnson, who works with uh, John MacArthur, that the grace to you ministries, he predicts that Calvinism will surge up and then will eat its own. Like it will, it will be killed by hyper Calvinism. And he, he bases that on the, 
repetition of history that Calvinism has rose up in popularity throughout the ages four or five different times. And it, it ends up dying out, getting, getting killed by other hyper Calvinists. And so he predicts that's what's going to happen again this time, which I always point out to my Calvinist friends that either that's because the system itself is untenable and unbiblical or because God ordains for the system to kill itself. It, one of the two must yeah. be true. And so, well, on that how, note, let's get back to Christy because as DAG Mitch said, where did Christy go? Well, here she comes. He wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. When Christians talk about you have a hardened heart against God, the Bible says that God's the one that hardened it. And then it, it even goes on to ask, well, then why does God still blame us? You know, if, if he created this way, how come he blames us? And Paul is saying, who are you to question God? How can the clay question the potter and ask, why have you made me like this? It says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? If he has decided he wants to create you just to destroy you, then he's going to do that. And that's his right. You don't get to question that. And realizing this changed everything about my perspective of God. Realizing this made me see a God who did not desire people to be saved, but instead creates people as puppets, does what he wants with them, and then tells them you're not allowed to question it. That is just in direct contradiction to any kind of a loving, kind um, father God that I was taught growing up in the church. I was fed one version of God who was a loving father, but I'm learning about this completely different God um, who intentionally creates people to go to hell. That right there really shattered my perception of God. It really caused me to start this journey of, of questioning what I believed and why I believed it. So the first passage I want to talk about is Whoops. from... Okay. So first thing I want to say is, because I don't know if either of you will say it, is that when she uses the language that Arminians and other non-Calvinists will often use with respect to how um, God functions on Calvinism of saying it's like there's puppets, like he's just, you know, working marionettes and having all of that. To whatever extent you consider that to be a fair criticism of Calvinism, uh, you would have to continue with guys like Guillaume Bignon who have uh, written on each of these analogies that non-Calvinists use and explained why he thinks that that is a straw man of the Calvinist position. Uh, nevertheless, here is where we are. She's, she's ultimately come to the realization that um, Romans 9 teaches, contrary to everything that you guys have just said, Romans 9 ultimately teaches this notion of God um, who controls everyone like puppets and ultimately uh, determines, I don't know if she used this exact language, some of them to be condemned and some of them to be saved, and you're not allowed to question it, and all of that, and you can't do anything about it. So uh, have we already answered all of these concerns, or is there more no, that you like can, to say? No, there's way more well, to let's say. Let's late, late yeah. start with this. Yeah, I, I think that, again, she's assuming, like the Calvinists, that the hardening is done arbitrarily, uh, and the mercying is done arbitrarily, meaning there's no real reason. It's just done before they're ever born. They're just created that way based upon his, the misreading of the earlier section of the scripture with regard to Jacob and Esau. And so, um, but that's not the case. Like we already mentioned, uh, Pharaoh was already a rebellious, hardened individual uh, who hardened his own heart several times before God ever uh, intervened to harden it. And, and God did so for a purpose to demonstrate his power through 
the the rebellion of Pharaoh in the in much the same way that he does to Israel. Israel did not were not just born hardened, you know, vessels of wrath. They became this by choosing to go their own way, by choosing to reject the things of God, by by becoming self-righteous and hardened in their rebellion. And now God's judicially blinding them or giving them a spirit of stupor, as it says in chapter 11, in order to bring about his purpose of redemption through them to graft in the Gentiles. So he's doing this for a, a greater good uh, through them. And who are they to question? Who are the Israelites to question God if he uses them and hardens them in their rebellion to bring about his purpose of redemption through them? That's the point of of, of Paul in Romans 9. He's not talking about as, as Dr. Pritchett pointed out earlier, he's not talking about the metaphysics of conversion of each individual um, as, as if God is predetermined for certain individuals to be hardened from birth and others to be mercied and graced and saved from birth. And he's just and he's just kind of arbitrarily picking people out before they're ever born for these purposes. That's not what he's talking about. If that's what he was talking about, then she would have a really good point and she would have <laughs> maybe a really she would have a really good question as you know maybe maybe I shouldn't wor- worship a god that's arbitrary like that and just controls us um and so this is one of the reasons I wrote the book and I do the podcast is because Megan Phelps and now Christy and many others that we've played on the program um are are using calvinistic conclusions as their justification for leaving behind Christianity and God and, and, and if nothing else, there needs to be apologists on our side who are giving a defense of the goodness and the character of God and, and saying, stepping up and saying, you've misinterpreted those passages. They're not saying that God's arbitrary and capricious and controlling us like puppets and these kinds of things. It's not, that's not the conclusion that you have to draw from understanding of, of Romans 9 or, uh, or any passage for that matter. Yeah. Uh, Pharaoh enslaved the Hebrews. Is Pharaoh a good guy or a bad guy? Uh, sim- He's a bad simple guy. question. Huh? It's a, He's bad, a guy. bad guy. He's yeah. a bad guy. He was like, he would take their straw, withhold it from him, and then say, you need to make me this number of bricks, even though you don't have what it was needed to make that number of bricks, right? He's just a jerk. And God said to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power. my my, Not just my my wrathful vengeance power my saving power and that my name might be proclaimed throughout what the whole earth what is paul talking about here bringing in the gentiles as covenant people and so israel finds itself in the spot of the ancient foe pharaoh their old nemesis and paul is saying that the unbelieving israel that's you now understand that Romans 9 is the part of his uh, speech. It's, it's, it's re- it really is a speech that's sandwiched between, uh, you know, a prescript and then the post. Uh, it's just in rhetoric, in ancient Greco-Roman rhetoric, this is the, the portion that is called the Reputatio, which is refuting possible objections to everything he said in Romans 1 through 8. Okay. So you have to keep all of that in mind. And this still is refuting possible objections to his propositio, the thesis statement um, of verses 16 and 17. That's the thesis, the central thesis to this whole speech. So throughout Romans, you have what's called a diatribe, which is a rhetorical device where you have a an interlocutor who is representing the common objections that Paul probably has heard 
throughout his ministry, going to the Jew first and then to the Greek, right? So he's he's engaged Jews before. He's dealt with uh, the things that they claim. They've even claimed things that are slanderous. Go back to chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. This is picking right up from that. Remember, throughout this entire diatribe, he'll put the words into the mouth of the opponent, you know, uh, as they some have slanderously claimed that we say, let us do evil so that good may come. That's absolute nonsense. That, that, that's Paul's response to this. Throughout the entire diatribe so far, Paul has never agreed with the premise, should we keep sinning so grace may abound, may it never be. He has never once agreed with the premise of his interlocutor. The only time he ever agrees with the premise of his interlocutor is when the interlocutor becomes the Gentile in chapter 11 in the diatribe. So we're still dealing with a Jewish interlocutor who does not like to find himself, according to Paul's uh, argument here, in the position of Pharaoh, unbelieving Israel. And, and Paul says to, to this man who is, who are you, O man? Right? Mm-hmm. When, when, the, when the person says, you, may, you will say to me then, in the same way that they say things to slander Paul's gospel, go back to Romans chapter 3, they, they make all these claims. Paul knows what they're going to say. And what they're saying is things that they probably don't even themselves believe, but they are saying these things to slander Paul. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist, for who resists his will? And Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man? And who is the man? The man, the diatribe person, the fictitious interlocutor who represents unbelieving Israel, right? So uh, sometimes Calvinists will say, it says, see, who are you, O man? Not who are you, O nation? Yeah, if you understand anything about how rhetoric works, the man is representative of the unbelievers of the nation. It's not a, yeah. it, okay, that's collectivist culture. That, that's how it works. Anyway, so and he says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God, Right? The thing molded will not say to the one to the molder, "Why did you make me like this?" Will it? Or does the potter not have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for common use? God has done a wonderful thing. We can go to Wisdom of Solomon, and you can find uh, a reference to the potter clay. You can go to Sirach and find a reference to the potter and the clay, and you can go to a lot of uh, potter clay analogies that you can find. Um, not only in the second temple, but you can you can even find it in like um, the Essenes documents, stuff like that. You can find this this metaphor everywhere. But we're in Romans chapter nine, and Romans chapter nine takes us from the patriarchs to the Exodus, and now we are moving into the exilic period. And thankfully, we have exilic literature in the Bible itself to tell us what this Potter pot you have you have it three times in uh, Isaiah, and you have it once in Jeremiah, right? So we know what is going on with the potter and the clay. And Paul uses a similar metaphor. Is it 2 Thessalonians? 2 Timothy 2.20. Uh, yeah, 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 in, 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 yeah. in a large house, yeah, there are earthen vessels, right. some for honor, some for dishonor. He uses the same exact analogy. And then he says, if you cleanse yourself, you will be used for the honorable purpose, right. showing that the analogy of a, a clay pot doesn't remove the responsibility of the pot to repent and believe. Uh, and, and same with right. Jeremiah 18. If yeah, you do and, this, and, then I, the potter, will, will shape and use you in this good way. And if you do this other thing, then I will shape and use you for an ignoble purpose. I mean, you, yeah. you can't get any more clear just looking at these other texts where, where Paul right. and other and there's six or seven words in here. Yeah, and there's six or seven words in here that the Greek tracks pretty closely to Isaiah 29. 
right? So we know that that the biblical, the canonical usage of this metaphor is in Paul's head, right? I mean, if you go to Wisdom of Solomon, sure, you can find elements of Wisdom of Solomon chapters 12 through 15 in Romans 1, 18 through uh, 32, yeah, but why do I not think he's referencing wisdom or Sirach here? Well, in Wisdom of Solomon, the potter uh, is an idol maker. And then that potter is too stupid to realize that he's just another pot like all of the pot idols. So I don't think Paul's referencing that. I think Paul's clearly referencing the exilic texts um, of his own Judaism, of his own canon. Right? And he's following very closely along with Isaiah. And what is what, what is all that about? Well... And Isaiah is talking about one of the time is Cyrus, and since Cyrus is not Jewish, I don't I don't think that that's we we could take that reference. But we still have t- two others in Isaiah, and we have Jeremiah to get a sense of what the the potter and the clay is. Now, what did the in Jeremiah? What did the clay do? It became flawed in the hands. Did it say that the potter flawed it? No, it said the clay became flawed. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Again, it's it's not that God well, and, and, and that and that perfectly relates to uh, to Israel. You know, the, this pot is is being chosen for this noble purpose. Israel is being chosen to bring the law, the prophets, the Messiah is being chosen to come through this nation, and the nation becomes marred in His hands. Why? Because the potter messed up? Of course not. We none of us would say God messed up, but Israel messed up. Israel went its own way. And so does the potter now have the ability as the potter, the potter to reshape and remold Israel to use for an ignoble purpose, like to cry out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. So as to bring about redemption for the Gentile nations, of course he does. And then who would be the objector in that situation? An Israelite reading this would go, how are you still blaming me? Why am I to be blamed? If me crying out, crucify him is a part of your plan that you brought to pass for the salvation. Righteousness is being brought to pass because of what I'm doing. Then why am I still to be blamed? And that's what Paul's saying. Who are you to talk back to the potter? If he yeah. wants to shape and use you for his ignoble use. Israel still has a covenant, right? There's just a newer, better one, right? And this, he's talking to Israel and Israel, the same lump of clay is not the entire mass of humanity from Adam to the eschaton, right? The same lump is Israel. He has the right to make from the lump of clay that is Israel one vessel, i.e. believers, right? For honorable use and another for common use. He goes on, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath that he made, these vessels from the lump of Israel, He's enduring them with patience. He did this to make known the riches of his glory of the vessels of mercy. He made vessels from the same lump of Israel, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, listen to this. Why is the same lump? Not only from the Jews, right, of Israel, but also from among the Gentiles. So these vessels from the same lump, you've got the wrath vessels. They have a purpose the vessels of mercy from the same lump of Israel have a purpose. And what is that purpose? To go out and, and bring these, you know, they were prepared beforehand. doesn't say before the foundation of the world. It's talking about they were prepared beforehand uh, for this glory. Even us, whom he called, not only from the Jews, not only from that lump, but also from among the Gentiles. And then he goes into Hosea, 
right? Well, Talking before about, you get into Hosea, I, I would yeah. just interject there that the that again you got to think about the reason by for which he's preparing him for that end. In other words, you can't just assume that he's preparing Pharaoh, raising Pharaoh up for this very purpose arbitrarily. In other words, causing Pharaoh to be a bad character, but instead knowing and using Pharaoh in his already evil schemes to bring about his purpose. It's a big difference. So same thing with these vessels. Yes, they're prepared for destruction because they're unbelievers. <laughs> they're hardened and rebellious. Yeah. And so they've prepared themselves in that sense. And by the way, even, even some Calvinists like MacArthur and others even talk about the passive way in this preparing uh, that is actually uh, well, the self-preparing, yeah. more of a middle voice, right? And yeah. so that's even some Calvinists even make that that note Sproul there. Does, so you can't just Sproul assume this is just an arbitrary, like she is. She's basically, um, Christy here is basically interpreting it like the, the lowest level Calvinist does, is that God's just arbitrarily picking certain people, creating them for destruction as, as a vessel going for hell. And, and the others he's, he's creating for salvation as vessels going to heaven. And he's basically going to be the one who determines whether they believe or don't believe. And that's not, as, as being pointed out here, that's not what he's, he's no, talking no, about. Notice these vessels are prepared for, is not destroyed, right? These vessels are vessels he is enduring with prepa- uh, patience. patience. Why is he patient he's with patient them? patient with these vessels. <laughs> oh, well, he goes on to say, because God's holding out his hands all day long, you know, then, yeah. then of course we find out the answer to these questions in, in, in the, uh, keep reading principle <laughs> of nine, 10 right. and 11. Um, so this is all God has ha- God is going to have a purpose for those who are obedient and those who are disobedient, those whom he has called out of this same lump, but not only from the lump, not only from the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. Why? Because he's expanding his, his reach so that his name is proclaimed throughout the whole earth, which is why he deals with vessels of wrath, like Pharaoh and like unbelieving Israel in the present. It's a pattern. So, um, let's see. So we have a poll here. Uh, is Christie right about Romans nine? Ten percent <laughs> of the audience said yes. Ninety percent said no. Um, there Layton, are, to be fair, there are some Calvinists who would say, "Yeah, that's not going." I mean, that's what I thought. I yeah. thought the Calvinists in the audience probably still wouldn't say she. she yeah, there are right. some. There are some Calvinists who would say, "Nope, she's spot on." There are other Calvinists, more thoughtful Calvinists, who say, wait a minute, that's that's not really what's going on here, right? And then there, there's some well, Calvinists even, who— And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people heard me talk about how, you know, Jacob and Esau and the Edomites, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and that it actually, the, the connotation of the word means to love less, to choose one over the other. I actually learned that from Sproul, of all people. Uh, R.C. Sproul taught that. And so, like you were talking about the Sproul of the 80s, the softer form of Calvinism. You, you read MacArthur, especially older MacArthur. Um, he 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 argues against A. W. Pink and argues that God does love all people and does, and genuinely desires all to be saved and and has a different approach than A. W. Pink, who says that God hates the reprobates. There's different heights of Calvinism, and so it just needs to be pointed out because there are some so softer, lower forms of Calvinists that would be just as appalled by. Christie's reading of Romans nine as, as you and I are now, honestly, I do think the A.W. Pinks um, and the higher Calvinist reading is more consistent within the claims of the overall Calvinistic system. The theology. Is, yes. 
Yes, right. Within the systematic, it, it, the AW pinks are more consistent uh, within that systematic, much more, much less consistent with all of scripture in my estimation. And that, that's where I think why Calvinism begins to crumble upon itself over time, because people begin to see these cracks very clearly. Yeah. When I, when I was working on my major writing project, I always had a, had a running thing that, you know, I don't just put, you know, uh, the sources I like, but if I could find a, a, a Calvinist scholar who supports what I'm saying in, in my own commentary, when I, when I was talking about Romans nine and uh, actually my whole, I did 200 pages and it was basically just dealing with, uh, 19 through, uh, 24. So, um, I yeah. mean, yeah. Well, it's just like a lot of people don't recognize I, I use or something. Yeah. I wrote 200 I pages John, on yeah. those six verses. Leighton had, Leighton I used John. But, I said, I said my, yeah, I use John Calvin whenever I'm I'm defending John three sixteen against oh, guys like yeah, James sure. White. I, yeah, because I mean that's why John, I don't. That's why I, I I overall, like I say, I don't take Calvinism seriously, but I do take the Calvinists seriously because I mean they they write a lot of things that I agree with. It's just, it baffles me sometimes that you could say that you understand this. Why don't you follow that through consistently? But we we know that sometimes. Um, and I think Arminians do it too. Um, sometimes a scholar will say one thing in one arena, like their biblical scholarship. They'll make their modest claims. Then they'll go over here to give a a, a theological talk, or they'll give a, a lecture, or something, or they'll appear on a podcast, and they they go a lot further than the more modest claims. It's like the Bart Ehrman effect. You have mm-hmm. good Ehrman and Bart, bad Ehrman. You have like good Schreiner and bad Schreiner, because Thomas Schreiner does the same thing. Uh, he'll try, he'll make some modest claims in his, uh, in his, at least in his first edition of, of his Romans commentary, but then you'll, you'll see him sitting on stage without Moeller and everyone else at SBTS and they'll, they'll make these radical yeah. claims. That yeah. Well, somebody never. else has make rad, radical claim. I, I want us to be able to pray after this stream for Raymond, because what he as apparently a non-Calvinist, according to what he's written here, no, he is, is so a- horrendously, <laughs> um, uh, unacceptable as Christian theology yeah. uh, seems like way, way too much love for free will. Oh, I would yeah. repent of having written something like that. Mm-hmm. Actually, seriously, I do have a question. We've got a couple of questions here. One's from Raymond. It all in all caps boils down to free will. The real central thesis is y'all's are, is y'all are ultimately only defending free will. That presupposition shapes your entire theology, provisionist, Molinist, open theist, etc. Well, here's the thing about it. Has anyone even mentioned free will yet I, in this I, entire podcast? I, I don't know, but here's the thing. Did, did anyone say the words free will anywhere? Um, Jonathan. I'll have did. to check Christy the did. transcript, but I don't. I mean, I've. Jonathan, I, yeah. I had something to say. Okay. Okay. Uh, there, I understand why to someone who is against us here and is against our position here. Um, and and is a, a really convinced and committed Calvinist of some sort would perhaps see that as, as a easy response or like maybe think of it the way some non-universalists think about universalists. Oh, they're just too weak. They just don't can't imagine everyone going to hell and things like that. I got to tell you that I, I was a loudmouth, leather-lung, red-faced Baptist evangelist preaching uh hell is hot and heaven's not and all of that sort of thing. <laughs> and I didn't have any re I, when I came to believe this, 
I did not have any motivation just to make to air condition things or to make it seem not as big of a deal. What happens is instead, if I look at and I'm telling you, this is going to sound chosen just to make a rhetorical point. This is absolutely the truth. I've debated this publicly at least four times. Um, and I can tell you that when I look at Romans nine, when I look at Ephesians chapter one, and when I look at John chapter six, I read it after understanding uh, some of the hermeneutical principles and hearing some of the debates. When I finally read those with an understanding of, of how the original hearers would have heard this and without and after stripping away all of the um, uh, caked on theology that I, that I think happens from all perspectives on this. I was just, I, you read it and you're like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, this isn't Calvinism at all. Like, I don't see how they, how I ever thought this might have been a proof text for Calvinism. Case in point, great, great example is Ephesians chapter one, when, uh, well, we were all chosen, uh, God chose us all before the foundation of the earth. No, you were chosen in Christ, the, the, a corporate group. That, once that was understood, well, Ephesians 1 is not at all talking about Calvinism or determinism or any of those sorts of things. Or and this is not because, oh, I've got to crave my free will. It's because I don't think that's what it's saying. Yeah. Well, also, look, I don't, I mean, we talked about will earlier. I think the girl, Christy, mentioned free will or whatever. Uh, it's worth reminding that if you just say free will, uh, I know a ton of Calvinists who believe in free will. They just define it differently on that's right. But so, so what, unless that's what compatibilism, it, that's what compatibilism is all about is they're right, trying to yeah. say determinism is compatible with human responsibility, free will, human culpability, yeah. whatever verbiage you want to use there. But even compatibilists defend quote unquote free will. Right. I mean, so uh, yeah, I don't care about free will. Do I, do I believe in libertarian free will? Sure. Because I haven't heard an argument, uh, that persuades me that it's false. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that makes me think that uh, libertarian free will is is false. There's nothing about science. And even if libertarian free will, is, there's nothing about if, if God created a deterministic cosmos, you still haven't gotten me from there's compatibilism or determinism of some kind to divine determinism, much less it's all encompassing divine decree from eternity past that gives rise and shape to the form and all the multiple dimensions and whatever James White talks about the degree giving the rise to all of human history, blah, 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 blah. You haven't gotten me to this all encompassing deterministic divine decree. The first degree in the Bible is let there be light. But other than that, um, I, I don't find that kind of de divine determinism to even be the next plausible thing to like just a uh, physics mechanicus, you know. Well, and still one of my favorite quotes from you, Dr. Pritchett, is when you said that free will is not a superpower because that that's what it seems like people assume about our position right. that we we think that because humans have free responsibility the ability to respond positively or negatively within the scope uh, that he has created us we, we can't do anything we want to do obviously um we can only right. do you, what if you were really free you could fly like a bird or not get sick or Whatever. Exactly. Right. Well, I'll, well, I'll have limitations. So free free will is not about uh, being able to thwart the purposes and plans of God. It's not about being more powerful than God. Um, if God wanted to to change our wills and make us love him like some kind of robotic, you know, puppetry or automatons, I'm sure he could. I mean, what's to keep him from doing things like that? Would you don't believe that's the way he would? Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if it's he, atheists or Calvinists who have added this 12% yes yeah. to is Christy right about Romans nine. If it's atheists. Okay, fine. If it's Calvinists, 
They're saying that someone with the natural mind has discerned these spiritual things. <laughs> it seems to me. Um, no. Okay, so Der- Derek Beeler has a question here. Do any of you guys believe moral responsibility is compatible with determinism? I don't. This isn't the same thing as believing compatibilism is true, just whether or not it's... No, 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 it is. It is kind of. So compatibilism is the notion that determinism is compatible with moral responsibility. And some will say with some understanding of freedom, but obviously, and but Derek knows this, obviously not libertarian freedom is compatible with determinism. But it is kind of the thesis that um, you can, that determinism is true, and yet we can be morally culpable or blameworthy. So I think that is the thesis. Um, do any, oh, yeah. He's no, not saying- I don't think it's compatible. I, so, yeah, I would be a compatibilist if I thought that was compatible. I don't think it's compatible. Really? What? You would be a compatibilist if you thought it was possible. And no, I would believe that those two things could be compatible. And in fact, here's you a point. You said I would be a compatibilist. Hold on. Okay. I'll fix I'll explain it for you. Yeah, I've ha- I had right. people jump all over me for this one time, but I think this is a completely fair thing to point out. I could be, I could, so here's the sense in which I believe libertarian freedom is true. Okay. Yeah. And I believe in a type of libertarian freedom that gives me not only nothing external to my, uh, to me, determines my actions, but also in most cases, I have the principle of alternative possibilities. I could choose more than one thing. Um, okay. Now, um, it, a person could say, a libertarian could say, and people say they can't because it's a principled position, but I, I'm just saying a libertarian could say, I hold libertarian freedom to be true for other reasons. Besides the moral problem, that the, the gives you moral culpability mm-hmm. and, and praiseworthiness, blameworthiness, such that if I f- so if I found a, if there was a person that turned out to be determined in all of their actions, perhaps I could still say, oh well, they're they're morally culpable or, or blameworthy all the same, and so I could be a libertarian that says if you find someone who is determined, then compatibilism is still true, and that's fine. Now for me. And I just don't see why that you couldn't say that as a libertarian, except to just say, no, that's just not what libertarianism is. Well, libertarianism is the position that uh, that I described, that you principle of alternative possibilities, nothing external to you determines your actions, something like that. And I'm saying you could do that and say, if God made a determined person, then c- compatibilism still works on them. It's they're still morally culpable. Now, for me personally, I don't I don't think you I don't think that you are morally culpable. If if determinism is true, yeah, I, but I could see the position. Do I think moral responsibility is compatible with determinism? No, unless we change the definition of moral responsibility to I like what Layton says, moral punishability. Yeah, uh, I think I think punishing people for actions they were determined is sure. Why not? I mean, if that's what you want to do. I mean, they couldn't have not slaughtered the baby, you know, in the crib. What? Yeah. Uh, someone goes in with to the cribs, baby screaming, decides to take a knife to its throat. They couldn't have done otherwise, but you can punish them for, for having performed the action. I don't call that moral responsibility. I call that moral punishability. And in that sense, sure. I mean, you, you can have that compatible with determinism. I just don't think that there's anything uh, <laughs> there. There's no there there when it comes to actual morality, if we're talking about moral, you know, morals being real. But... Um, yeah, you know, no, it's I, just yeah. it's just space dust doing stuff, and then we decide to label that 
that action is something we punish and that action is something we don't punish. Um, but it all becomes a facade. But if you want to have, you know, a facade moral system, then sure. Uh, it's compatible with moral punishability. Um, yeah. But no, yeah, I don't I, think I, it's true if we have Layton, a real morality. What do you think? Yeah, I, I would say that um, in the philosophical sphere, uh, I, I am an incompatibilist, meaning I do not believe that theistic determinism is compatible with moral responsibility. And so that that's the basic answer to the question. But to get into the more of the theological nuances of this, um, can God determine something to happen and for a person through whom that's determined still be held morally accountable. Yes, Pharaoh would be the good example of that. But remember, Pharaoh was already a bad character. Dr. Pritchett pointed that out. He was already a bad guy. God knowing and using a already corrupt person in his corruption to bring about a good purpose of redemption through him is much different than God determining for him to be that way from the beginning. And that's where I think Calvinists mess up. I think Calvinists will use examples like the hardening of Pharaoh or the crucifixion of Jesus as, look, God determined this thing that was evil that happened. Uh, Judas and, and Pharaoh, I mean, Judas and, well, Pharaoh is another example. And and Pilate, these people did what God determined him them to do, according to Acts 2 and 4. And so, therefore, God can be um, somehow determining these things without being morally culpable for them and yet still hold Judas responsible, still hold Pilate responsible, still Pharaoh responsible. Therefore, we have reason to believe that this, 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 the, these two things are compatible with each other. And I just have to point out, as, as Dr. Pritchett did earlier, is the person a bad character that God is using in his corruption or is God determining that character to be bad from birth where he couldn't have done otherwise? Uh, source libertarianism, as you were referring to, uh, Dr. Hunter. And so that, that's why you've got to kind of unpack these things one at a time to demonstrate how the Calvinist is doing injustice to the text to use these biblical examples as if God is just arbitrarily, unilaterally creating people for destruction, creating people to be bad characters versus his knowing and using bad characters for a good purpose. Right on. Kevin, uh, who is one of our uh, agnostic friends, says... And has a debate on this very channel. And has had a debate on this very channel with Chris Day. It's a great and debate. A beautiful beard. I really enjoyed it. Beautiful beard. And has a yeah. fantastic beard. Um, if we're just presupposing God's goodness, he says then isn't any conversation around whether or not the God of the Bible is good or not kind of just over before it starts? Like we've talked about this before. If you're just going to like, we believe that God has given us these moral sensibilities that we have. And mm -hmm. to, to say something like, well, good just means whatever God does. So if God decides tomorrow to break all his promises to you um, and you want to call that evil, well, sorry, that's just good because everything God does is good just because God does it, then it you, you sort of lose any meaning for the term good because you're kind of just saying, uh, you know, good good is like whatever God does. So uh, he God is good. Well, you're just saying God is. You know, it doesn't seem yeah. to mean anything. Yeah. Um, and Leighton, by the way, I'm noticing that occasionally you'll pull something up that you might be wanting to show. Is that something you intend to do? do you, would you like to show something? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about this this particular website um, that I was about to pick out here, but um, because I'm not sure I can endorse it, but it, it is a quote from C.S. Lewis that I happened to, to find on this particular website, and uh, it's it's um, and I don't know if you can share it. C.S. Lewis on total depravity. Um, it says any consideration. This is Lewis uh, Lewis speaking here. Any consideration of God 
at once threatens us with the following dilemma. On the one hand, if God is wiser than we, his judgments must differ from ours on many things, and not least on good and evil. What seems to us good may therefore not be good in his eyes, and what seems to be us evil may not be evil. On the other hand, if God's moral judgment differs from ours so that our black may be his white, we can mean nothing by calling him good for to say God is good while asserting that his goodness is wholly other than ours is really only to say God is we know not what. And an utterly unknown quality in God can, cannot give us moral grounds for loving or obeying him. If he is not, in our sense, good, we shall obey, if at all, only through fear and should be equally ready to obey an omnipotent fiend, which is an all-powerful demon. The doctrine of total depravity, where the consequence is drawn that, since we are totally depraved, our idea of good is worth simply nothing, may turn Christianity into a form of devil worship. I just think that's a really powerful quote that I, I use in my book, as well as um, in, in other places, just to demonstrate this very point that you're bringing up, is that we, we have been given by God, he's created us in his image, the ability to know right from wrong, to have intuitive understanding. Braxton, you and I have talked about uh, intuition that God has given us and how that's an important part of uh, the Imago Day within us, that God's given us the ability to see and know right from wrong. That's a, the result of the fall. Now they know right uh, the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. And, and so I think understanding that is really important when it comes to, to making moral judgments about who God is and how the Bible chooses to reveal him to us and to recognize that, that the revelation falls short. I mean, and when I say the revelation falls short, I mean that remember Peter was a, uh, was a means by which God revealed himself to people, but Peter fell short. In other words, Peter wasn't perfect. David man after God's own heart revealed a lot to us through the Psalms and other writings, but he fell short. He messed up. And so we got to remember that the means by which God brings revelation are through human fallen means. And so, yeah, we have some flaws. We have some um, stumbles. We have some mishaps with regard to uh, his revelation to the world. But he is not imperfect. He is perfect. And, and recognizing that sometimes our failings and understanding him may be imperfect uh, through the revelation that we've been given but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with starting with the presupposition based upon what we know through Christ, especially. Um, that's why that's why all that I read through the scripture is through the lens of Christ and that he is our perfect and final revelation of who God is and his character. And so that's why I start with the presupposition that God is good because Christ is good. And Christ, for me, represents the true character of who God is. Um, let's go on to another question. And so, uh, let's see. Encouraged Faith asks, I read Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God for a Trinity College Class. I really liked the book. After looking him up, the Calvinists claim him as theirs, but Jerry clearly states that God, and maybe there was another follow-up message to that. Uh, let's see. And I should. This is what happens when you don't read what you're going to put up on the screen ahead of well, time. Well, and, and when and when you're finding that, I can comment on that. Um, Go ahead. As a Calvinist, I did this a lot too when I was a Calvinist. Um, you you tend to acclaim everyone that is, you think is smart, that you look up to. A, you know, A.W. A. Um, Tozer, for example. A lot of Calvinists claim A.W. Tozer as one of their own or C.S. Lewis as one of their own, only to discover that he's they're far from it. They actually had writings against Calvinism. 
one example I just read from C.S. Lewis speaking out against total depravity. Um, and so uh, the, the reason that Calvinists do that is because I think there's an assumption apart from the Calvinist that says if somebody is a, a strong exegete and a serious Bible scholar, then they have to be a Calvinist because all good Calvinists would, would understand and have this deep theology. And, and, and that's one of the things that I think is really sh- shocking the, the system, so to speak, is that the, the MacArthur's and Sproul's of the world really did a good job of pointing out that the seeker sensitive, you know, Osteen's of the world were, were, were mile wide, but an inch deep, just real surface level kind of preachers. And, and a lot of people were drawn away from that into a more exegetical, um, serious kind of faith led by men like Piper and, and MacArthur and Sproul and others. But along with that was adopted into their Calvinism. And, and many people have not been introduced to the fact that there are people who are right there with MacArthur and Piper and Sproul with regard to the need for exegetical, deep, serious study of scripture that don't land on the Calvinistic soteriology. And I think that's what we're beginning to see introduced within um, you know, our broadcast and your broadcast and others is that there are really good, serious scholars who are very exegetical, very biblically based that don't side with the Calvinistic interpretation of, of soteriology within. Yeah, the, that's absolutely true. Now, text. in this case, uh, I just did a little uh, search there. real. I quick. And I don't I know about Jerry Bridges. Yeah, I yeah, I can't I can't say that. for sure. But the rest of this quote that they want to give us is. So I read Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God in the Trinity Class. I really liked the book. After looking up the Calvinist claim is theirs, Jerry clearly states that God works in tandem with man's free will. Why do they still claim him? Do you know more about Jerry? Thanks. Well, I just looked up, uh, I just saw an article where he was giving an interview and his transcript, and he said many of his friends are non-Calvinists, which to me... Oh, he also told Calvinists to be friendly, to not... To not forget the universal call of the gospel. Yeah. So there's so a- so so hold on. So so that's there. So maybe he is a Calvinist. But I want to notice that the language Calvinists speak, as we mentioned just a little bit ago, Calvinists do speak of um, the free will of man. They just think of it as compatibilism. And just to make it clear, so on libertarian freedom, it's probably what you're referring to when when and what you may have supposed he was referring to when you when you use the word free will. Um, it just means that nothing external to you determines your actions or you have the ability to choose among a range of options and um, and you and you really could choose one you could have chosen other than whatever you ended up choosing. Now Calvinists have uh, a firm deterministic compatibilism. It is determinism, but what they say is well, okay, but you still choose whatever you want to choose and uh, what more could you want than the freedom, the ability to choose whatever you want? The thing is, the determinism happens at one higher layer with you don't choose what you want and that what you want is what ultimately determines what you choose on this view. And so even though you end up doing whatever you want, your wants were chosen for you or determined for you. And as a result, your choices flow from those such that it's still just as much determinism and thoughtful Calvinists who are philosophically aware of this will say, yeah, it is determinism, but there's still a realm of culpability there. This is what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. Can you still be morally culpable and blameworthy and praiseworthy if determinism is true? Well, that's what the thesis of compatibilism basically is. And so ultimately what we, what we get here is it may be that you have a Calvinist say something like that, that God wants us to you know, exercise our free will or something, and they just don't mean it the way that a libertarian would mean it like us. 
Yes, and and, and we, we've we've confronted that on my broadcast quite a few times to to help people to recognize that compatibilism is not denying determinism. Uh, a lot of a lot of people mistakenly think that compatibilism is somehow denying theistic determinism is really true, and that's not the case. It, it, what is what's compatible on compatibilism is that theistic determinism is true according to the compatibilist, but somehow mysteriously. And I'm, and I'm not saying that to be pejorative. Even John Calvin confesses ignorance on how it is that God is not the author and the approver of transgression, to use his words. He, he doesn't know how it is that he is not implicated as the fault and the author and approver of our transgression. He doesn't know how God can't be considered guilty. He just doesn't believe that he is. And he appeals to mystery as to how God is innocent and how men are really culpable, given his theistic determinism. Man, and so basically... The realm it's, of theology... Mystery sure does come in handy sometimes. Yeah, it, it seems to me they're saying A is true and not A is true, and it's a mystery as to how that's the case, but it just is, so you better accept it. And and if you're not willing to accept it, that's when oftentimes, you know, some some uh, lower Calvinists in the sense that they're not being very good Christians start to gaslight you or make you feel like you're not really a Christian or make you feel like you're not really willing to accept the whole counsel of God's word. When, when in, the truth of the matter is we're, we're, we're simply interpreting these texts differently than you have. And there is a host of other scholars throughout Christian history. Matter of fact, a majority of them who have also interpreted these texts in a non-Calvinistic way. And I think more people need to be aware of those interpretations before they bring judgments against the character of God, like, like Christy has done in this video. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they're gaslighting so much as just spewing sanctimonious blather. You know, that we have a t-shirt for that. Um, honestly, atheist. Thank you for this comment. It says this is an atheist. I'm not used to hearing apologists summarize opposing views as well as Braxton does. It's refreshing. And the reason why I keep coming back. Well, I really appreciate that, honestly, atheists. And I want you to keep coming back. Um, here's another question from Anon O. Moose. Clever. Uh, how would you guys respond to a cat? And I'll take this guy's first if you want. Um, how would you guys respond to a Calvinist atheist who says that if God was there, they should or would be able to perceive his existence and then would obey him? But they can't, and so don't. So this sounds very much like the problem of divine hiddenness, and this is the question of, okay, it, why isn't God more apparent? Why doesn't he give us more evidence? Um, perhaps why doesn't he show up in Jerusalem or on the White House lawn or something You know, once every few years just to do a couple of miracles and remind everyone? Not that this is what a nano moose was saying, but this is kind of, you know, I'm just kind of expressing what I think the problem could be. Because um, if heaven and hell and life and death and a damnation, all these kind of things are on the line, you would expect it would be pretty darn obvious so that we can make sure that, that, that we understand and are making the right choice. Now, there's a few things to say about this, and I'll try to be brief. The first thing is my answer, the answer for me, Braxton Hunter, not saying that this is always what I would tell an atheist, but I personally think that there is an incredible amount of evidence. I think every physical object and concept in the universe can be used as a part of a compelling argument for God's existence. And I think there's a great case for the truth of Christianity. Now, I know that that is not going to be satisfying to some atheists uh, or any. So I'll, I'll put it this way and say that, uh, first of all, if it, uh, it, what we would draw from passages that seem to imply that Everyone should be able to see this, like Romans one twenty. that look, uh, talking about idolatry in that case, these idolaters don't have a good excuse 
because they should be able to look around the world around them and see that it's obvious that there is a God for his invisible attributes and uh, his and eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So if they're without excuse, it should be pretty darn obvious. Uh, uh, one way you could approach this, and it's the way Jonathan McClatchy approaches this, is to say, look, well, you said you're going to be brief. It may be, hey, you have talked a hey, lot on this. Yeah, episode, I have, to, so I have can... to defend Braxton on this one, man. He <laughs> he still talked a lot less than you have. I just have to say the question is <laughs> not even you. about divine hiddenness. It's a Calvinistic atheist saying if God was there, I can't do anything about it unless he makes me want to see it. That's the question. See, that was that was what he was trying to do, Braxton. He was just trying to get you stop so he could insert. What he was wanting to say. <laughs> oh, you're saying you're saying they're saying that a Calvin. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true. So maybe I should just cut off my response to divine hiddenness. No way. I'm going for it. So anyway, if someone does want to know about divine hiddenness, I like Jonathan McClatchy's approach, which just says, look, all that means is at some point prior to death, it should be made clear to them. And no one knows that until the moment of death. Not even Christopher Hitchens, who said that he would not, if you hear that he is converted, it either means that he's no longer himself or uh, because of the disease or, or because um, he, uh, or, or, that, or that it's a lie, that he didn't really convert. He can't even know that because he doesn't know what's going to be made clear to him in the final moments of his life. So, um, I, and so I, I hold that, that it will be made clear at some point or has been made clear. Now, to, to that question, well, I, I would just say Calvinism is false. If that's the question, which uh, then that is, well, why doesn't God just grace people so that they can see it? Well, I don't think Calvinism is true. We've so seen atheists have this conversation with Calvinists. Like, I think Pine Creek had a Cal Calvinist on, and some mm -hmm. others have had Calvinists on. I've seen several of these conversations with Calvinists. And the atheist is like, well, it doesn't really matter what you tell me about Christianity, because if Calvinism is true— then no matter what you say, I'm not going to believe it unless God makes me. So they're really but that. But, but hold on a second, Pritchett. We've seen the atheist. This is this is a divine hiddenness question because they're saying the Calvinist uh, or the, the Calvinist atheist would be said, well, if there really was a God, I would or should be able to perceive his existence and they would obey him, whether that's because he hasn't graced them or whether that's because of the typical divine hiddenness sorts of things. Yeah. It's still a divine hiddenness question. But I do know that— I want you to say, you were right, Braxton. Oh, you were right, Braxton. Thank it you. makes you feel better. Appreciate it. it does. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, and I mean that with so much sincerity. I know. Uh, I, I, yeah. You're always sincere. Oh, Derek Beeler is asking me if I bowed uh, to my free will altar this morning. You know I forgot I'm so bad at this. Um uh, but I, I, I do I, I do worship my free will. According I have to, I'm to, sure I have a free will altar. And these guys too. are obsessed with it. This uh, I always, I always like to ask. Of stupidity. I always this like is to what, ask. This is what O'Flattery says. You are all defending free will, even though we're not really defending. We free read will. this question literally on the screen. Uh, and your autonomy from God. Now, look, I I believe in libertarian free will. You do too, right? Yes. Okay. Do you have autonomy from the federal government when it comes to your taxes? No. Do you have autonomy from the police if they're patrolling? I still have libertarian free will, but I don't have an option. I don't like. I have to obey that according to the law. Is that what you mean? Right. I, no. I, I'm saying just because you have free will doesn't mean that you're autonomous in every sense possible from God. You're still accountable to God. You're still, you know, I mean, God can impede anything that you try to attempt. I mean, same thing. Sometimes he uses uh, bright lights, big fish, according to, to quote Leighton Flowers. So, I mean, I don't understand why you guys 
make such stupid and they really are stupid statements. It's just this fount of stupidity that overflows from your social media accounts about free will when you don't even understand what libertarian free will is. Well, and so what's, what's just, really ironic is when you read when you read theologians, Calvinistic theologians like R.C. Sproul, Piper, I put you know put them up on the screen on their on their doctrine of divine holiness. They, they will talk about how God is separate, autonomous, different from us, all these kinds of things. But when you shift to talk about human responsibility, free will, no, there's no autonomy. There's no separateness. And that that's, that's, seems to me to be quite contradictory. To defend the holiness of God is to defend free will. That's basically what you're doing. So when, when Jeffrey Dahmer does his moral evil, what are you doing? God is holy. He doesn't do that. He didn't have anything to do with that. Um, it's like First John two sixteen says, "Pride and lust are not from the Father; they're from the world." What's that verse telling us? It's separate from God. When James one says, "When you're tempted, don't say that God's the one who tempted you." What is he doing? He's separating God from that evil thing that happened. Whenever in Jeremiah nineteen five, they're burning their children to Malek. He says, "God did not come, decree this, nor did it even enter his mind." What's what's the point of that verse? To separate that thing from the autonomous creature's will, the will of the autonomous creature, meaning that he's not existing autonomously from creation of God, obviously, but that he's acting autonomously. He's choosing to do something evil against the holy good character of God. That's the point of those verses. And we yeah, think and, that theistic determinism undermines that. And, and this is the important point uh, for any Calvinist, or um, now that we have apparently a number of atheist Calvinists, uh, I don't. That's the only way I know how to describe it. Ca atheists who think that the Bible teaches something approximating Calvinism um, is you need to understand when when this stuff comes up about oh well you guys just worship your free will. I get it, and it it doesn't bother us at all. No. But what I do want to emphasize is we're actually, as Leighton just kind of indicated, we are actually to the degree that we're happy about free will or glad that it turns out that we have free will. It's not for the reason you think. It's because of what we understand about the nature of God. It's because we think we don't think of God as being the one who first, uh, you know, thought of and ordained or decreed certain particularly evil things. We we think that's on us. That's on man, not on God. It's about, and it's so about actually, the blameworthiness. The blameworthiness of the sinner. We, we are blameworthy for our right. unbelief. We are blameworthy for our evil choices and actions, not God's decree. We don't. We, we would be shooting God. ourselves in the foot to argue for that reason. We're not arguing because, oh, we love our free will. That would be to shoot ourselves in the foot. We realize that the free will is, in one respect, a horrifying thing because what it means is that we have made our own choices. And, oh, my gosh, we have made wrong choices. We have messed it up far more than we've ever done things right. And where we've done things mm -hmm. right, we've done them by the grace and power of God. So it's far from being a selfish uh, sort of a notion. It is um, it is fully, whether we're right or wrong, an attempt to uh, apply the Bible yeah. and see how it seems to make God yeah, holy the, and us the, not. The issue is not about God's sovereignty. The issue is, did God create a deterministic cosmos, which is a statement about the cosmos, not about God. Did the sovereign God create a deterministic cosmos or not? We think not. Uh, I appreciate, I always appreciate a good troll, uh, and I appreciate good polemics, even against my position when they're funny. You guys aren't funny. You're just stupid. Don't call the audience stupid. No, I will when they're being stupid. Manny and uh, Raymond O'Flattery are saying stupid things, not funny things. I prefer them be funny. Try harder. 
Leighton, is that better? Uh, is there anything a little bit? Do you, do you, I, mean, do you, I, I encourage them to do better. Yeah. Do you have uh, anything else you want to add? This has been a fantastic stream and I've really enjoyed it. And now I can't, I'm, I'm having a hard time not laughing. So is there anything else you want to add to the end of this? Summatively, perhaps uh, just something about Christy and her video and uh, anything you want to say to wrap this up? Yeah, I'm, I, I was devastated, honestly, when I watched that video. Same same kind of devastation I feel when I watch, you know, Megan Phelps, who came out of the Westboro Baptist movement and was convinced that the Westboro Baptists, who are, you know, high, hyper type of Calvinists, um, that would actually offend most of the good Calvinists that we know and love. Um, but he coming out of that movement and, and basically interpreting Romans nine exactly the way Christie does and saying, therefore, I'm not a Christian any, any longer. Um, that is a, that's devastating to me for a number of reasons. Um, but the, the, the main reason is why I do the broadcast. One of the, the main reasons I do this is also that I see the implications of that way of thinking about who God is, the deterministic kind of uh, even fatalistic way of thinking about how God has chose to create this world. And as you were already mentioning, uh, Braxton, just regarding the blameworthiness of the sinner, uh, uh, holding ourselves responsible is basically, it's not about free will. It's, it's saying men are responsible for their unbelief. Uh, they're not rejecting a God who first rejected them. They're not hating a God who first hated them. They are rejecting a God who loves and provides for them, who sent Jesus to die for them. And that's why hell is so devastating is that the people don't have to go there. Um, they, they can uh, have relationship and reconciliation with their creator, God. And the three of us on the screen, we've experienced that reconciliation. We've experienced the peace that passes understanding and the joy that comes with a Christian uh, existence and walk. And we want other people to experience that. That's why we, the, we, we work so hard in our evangelism efforts and our training efforts and apologetics and evangelism and the things that we do for a living. We, we do that because we want people to experience what we, the joy we've experienced in Christ. Um, and so it's not so much about winning debates as it, and winning arguments as it is winning relationships. It's about helping people to see um, that what we've experienced has, has been so meaningful to us that we, we want you to experience it. We care about you enough to, to try to help convince you that this is true and you should consider it. And so that, that's, that's hopefully what people see at the heart of what we're saying is we're not just trying to one up you. We're not just trying to make you look bad in the sense of saying, you know, um, you know, you're, you you know, everything that you believe can't be true. But in, but in the sense of saying, some of the things that you're seeing about the scriptures may be difficult for you, but don't stop looking. Don't stop examining all the options and the best of the best scholars. If you run into a sticking point, don't allow that sticking point that you, you read in the scriptures to automatically be the excuse you give for not following through and, and, and better understanding the God of scripture. That's well, my reason would... for wanting you to be on here, Leighton, and to discuss this video is because it does seem uh, like there are several, I won't say a whole lot, I don't know, but in my experience, there are several people who came to believe that Calvinism is true, and I'm not saying that it's been each time because of that. Here, Christy explicitly says this is what began her uh, deconstruction. I'm not saying that's the case with all of them, but I do think it's worth responding uh, publicly to what Christy said because... Christy, uh, if you see this, I don't expect that you will, but if you do, I just want you to know there's no ill will towards you as an individual. Um, 
I just want you to know that there are other ways of interpreting this. And I'm sure you already know that, but I wanted you to hear from and others to hear from a very outspoken voice um, who has written and debated on this subject publicly. It, 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 when someone walks away from the faith, I think there are always more than one reason. I don't think it's ever just the evidence. I don't care who says that we are complex beings. We have a lot of different motivations. We have a lot of different um, reasons why we do things. And, but to the extent that uh, a Calvinist understanding of a particular passage of the Bible is what launched you into deconstruction. There are some of us, like for me, if I became, if I learned that Calvinism was true, I don't think that I would, stop being a Christian. I, I'm, but so I, here I am as a non-Calvinist saying, if you think that the Bible teaches Calvinism in this passage, I just want you to know that there are many of us who our Christianity is not on the line over it, but we absolutely don't think that's what it teaches. And it actually teaches a God whose mercy and grace is shown in a way that in terms of revelation is expanding to the people, even in his wrath and his hardening all has aims of mercy and salvation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. If you come across a Bible passage, go ahead, Layton. I was just going to say again, like Romans 11, 32 actually says, I've given them all over to disobedience so that I may show mercy to them all. That that's the theme of the passage. So number one, we got from, from these guys, if you're reading a passage and you think it makes God sound horrendous, just keep reading, number one. And then number yeah. two is uh, anytime you run into a Bible passage, obviously, let, let me just tell you, obviously, if you go online, I'm not saying this is what Christy or any particular person did. If you just go online and you go to YouTube and you type in that Bible verse and God is evil or is God evil or something like that, you're going to come up with a range of things. And a lot of those are going to be atheist channels uh, using that passage to say exactly you know, something against Christianity. But I have found that if you'll get with someone who knows what they're talking about, has has some background in studying these things, who's a Christian, you're often going to find that, oh, there was just a misunderstanding. I'm not saying there aren't passages that are genuinely tough. There are. Um, but I just think that too often um, the decision is made far too quickly, especially with a passage like this one. Leighton, I've really enjoyed having you on. Jonathan, uh, great wisdom as always. You beautiful nightmare. Calling and, people's statements stupid. And, and I didn't like that very much. Well, but, um, if they say stupid things, I'm going to say that those things are stupid. Well, I didn't say that they're listen, stupid. I said that they're I think you stupid. did, actually. But, but here's the thing. Well, my no, dog, I'm saying their social media accounts of things that they say is a fountain of stupidity my dog that just in, never, never runs out of water. My dog, Indiana, is mm-hmm. stupid. When people come to me on the street, oh, I bet he's so smart. I said, no, he's not. He's really stupid. Uh, but but he doesn't say anything at all. Conversely, the people in the stream today said plenty, and some of it was stupid. Okay, but fair, they're not stupid. In fairness, if all, I don't know if they're stupid. Okay, to be fair to you, if if I if I were to say that based on the only things that I know about these people, based on the statements that they made, I would have to conclude that they themselves are stupid based on the stupid things that endlessly flow from their so from their stupid. keyboards that's such a but, stupid thing to conclude but but i didn't <laughs> say that stupid, i said you guys are a does. yeah well i mean there's wisdom to that and it, all that they we can all agree wisdom. there's wisdom to that yeah so there's a feature that i've i've learned guys that maybe y'all haven't discovered yet it's called yeah. the block feature <laughs> so 
there there are some and i guess with your channel I, i'm i'm trying oh, to block i thought you were Blayton. i thought you were you're talking about blocking people on the stream yes i thought yes, that what you were people. recommending was that as as jonathan got so excited he needed to exercise the block breathing method to calm oh yeah, himself yeah. Down. <laughs> no, i don't block no, people that, on be good i've never blocked people on twitter on facebook or whatever I mean, well, you when you're people. reaching when you're reaching so many atheists and stuff, you, if you started down that road, you'd, you'd be blocking almost everybody. It seems like, but yeah, but when when someone starts getting in the side chat and saying things that are just so ridiculous and repeating the ridiculousness to where they're they're overwhelming the chat to where other people who are well intending and trying to have good conversations, um, sometimes it's just better to to get rid of them. And and I, and there's one particular gentleman over there that or I wouldn't call a gentleman at all. Um, that really doesn't belong in anybody's chat. Whoa, that's tough, tough talk. Well, I don't flowers. matter as much as you do, Leighton. I'm not as famous, so why is it I that you I'm... call it you calling something stupid and Leighton saying I wouldn't call that guy a gentleman at all? To me, is like on equal footing in terms of aggressiveness because Leighton never, well, he's not gentle. Never says anything. he's a man. But he's not gentle. Yeah. You know, obviously, yeah. he's not gentle. He's anything but gentle. Um, and, and, and sometimes when, when someone is getting bel that belligerent and saying things that are purposefully belligerent, uh, they just, they need to be put in time out They're They're at the children's table and they need to be put off at a different table so that they can have their little shouting matches with other people at that, that level of discussion so that people who ha are wanting to have intelligent conversations with the adults can not be interrupted by the kids I that just, are being too loud. Yeah. I just wish our trolls were funny. I could laugh if it was funny if they're making fun of us, well, I mean, like, you know, here, making jokes about free will. That's what and, that, that's what was know. making me laugh is that. Yeah, you were, I mean, it's like, but if you're just saying nonsensical drivel, it's it's it just makes you look dumb. So there and their Manny's interpretation of what you think is ridiculous is statements like, "Well, God saved me by His grace alone," which I think we could all say. So. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this has been fun, Leighton, and thanks for coming on. Everybody, check out his book on Romans nine and his other book, and go check out Sociology one hundred and one and enjoy Sociology one hundred and one while we are gone, as I am in Australia. And please pray for me uh, as I'm in Australia, and and, uh, and pray for the kangaroos. That's pray right; he's out to kill them. Apparently, yeah. I, actually, practicing the kangaroo. I'll hunter. say this: I keep <laughs> extending this. I'm sorry, Leighton, but. There is a mysterious thing that has happened. So I'm going to put this widescreen just for a second so you can see. You see this kangaroo here that we have. Okay. That kangaroo um, has a name, by the way. Uh-oh. Uh okay. Well, now I can't get back to everybody. We need, we need to, we need to make, make, make Braxton's middle name be Braxton Rue Hunter. Braxton Rue Hunter. He's the Braxton Kangaroo Hunter. I don't hear y'all anymore. Uh, I just wanted to say that that kangaroo oh, no. has been deflating. That is an inflatable kangaroo. It's been fine all year. It has just the past three times I've come into the office, except for today, deflated with no recognizable hole in it from which the deflation is happening. And I just can't help but notice it's happening right before I go to Australia. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure it means something. And folks, this has been awesome. We'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.